Hello, friends and fellow EM enthusiasts. Welcome back to eMedCast. My name is Larissa, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at Oregon Health and Science University. As always, thank you for listening to eMedCast, and don't forget to contact us on Facebook, Twitter, or on our website if you have comments, questions, or suggestions. Additionally, you could leave a comment on our Reddit post. If you like what you hear, tell your friends. Today's topic is a sad one, but one that seemed especially important to cover in the light of the events in Las Vegas on October 1st. Here at eMigCast, our hearts go out to all the people who have been affected by this recent tragedy. Now let's go back five years to July 20th, 2012. 315 and 314 for a shooting at Century Theaters, 14300 East Alameda Avenue. They're saying somebody is shooting in the auditorium. 315 and 314, there is at least one person that's been shot, but they're saying there's hundreds of people just running around. 514, I need the ambulance to export stable. I need the ambulance to export stable. 453, I have a party shot here. I need rescue hot. The dispatch audio you just heard was from Aurora, Colorado, when a gunman opened fire in a movie theater, killing 12 people, injuring 70, and deeply affecting the lives of countless others. As you may have gathered from our intro, today's topic is on the critical role that emergency medicine plays during and after a mass casualty incident. In order to better understand this topic, I'm in Denver, Colorado, to interview Dr. Richard Zane, who is a professor and chair of emergency medicine here at the University of Colorado, Denver, and the Executive Director of Emergency Services, as well as the Chief Innovation Officer at the University of Colorado Health. Today we discuss not only the specifics of the emergency response to the Aurora shooting, but also the critical role of EMS and emergency medicine in the care of patients during any mass casualty incident. Dr. Zane, thank you for coming on eMigCast today to talk about emergency medicine's role in mass casualty events. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm a fabulous dancer. I'm currently the chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and the executive director for emergency services at UC Health and the chief innovation officer as well. I've been here for five years or so. Prior to coming here, I was at Partners Healthcare and Brigham Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston, where I was vice chair of emergency medicine and the director for emergency preparedness for Partners Healthcare. What are your specific interests in mass casualty or disaster medicine? How did you develop this interest? I think that I developed this interest because I was exposed to it and then uh, thought it was intriguing. And what I really liked about it was that it requires systematic thinking and rapid implementation and had an opportunity for innovative and novel uh, ways to redesign response and planning. I read in your bio that you recently authored a WHO hospital emergency response checklist. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Have you done any other emergency medicine work for the WHO? No, that's all I've done for the WHO. I've done a lot of work for the HRQ, as well as uh, Homeland Security and uh, the Assistant Director for Preparedness and Response. Uh, the WHO checklist is really exactly that. It's a checklist for hospitals to go down and say, um, these are the things that one has to do when responding or prior to responding when preparing. So just like any checklist, a surgical checklist or 
uh, procedural checklist. It's similar in its scope. Can you talk about your role during the response to the Aurora shooting and its aftermath? My role uh, in the response to the shooting was nothing, to be honest with you. It was, I'd been here for three months uh, living alone, and my family had been in Boston, and uh, we were driving across the country, so the, the entire institution thought I was away moving my family. And it was literally my family's first night back. So when the event happened, uh, my cell phone went off uh, with a billion texts, almost status texticus. When I finally looked at my cell phone, uh, everything was done. And then I said to my wife, I've got to go to work. And she said, you can't go to work. This is, we just moved here and the moving truck is coming. And I said, I've got to go to work. So I went to work and by the time I got to work, the emergency department was uh, quiet. Everything was done. It, like most mass casualties and sudden uh, events, it was started quickly and ended quickly. And then after making sure that things were quiescent and that there was preparedness for the aftermath, uh, I went home, took care of my family. My son broke his arm, uh, took him to the emergency department where he got his arm set, and then I came back to work. And we met with staff and tried to organize uh, post-event debriefings uh, and the things that you do in the post-event. What kind of things do you do in the post-event? Well, it depends what type of event it is. In this case, which is a, a sudden, violent, catastrophic uh, event where people see things they've never seen before and see violence that they've never seen before, um, you have to worry about the providers. Uh, and when I say providers, I speak providers large. Uh, everyone from the trauma surgeons to the emergency physicians to the nurses to housekeeping to supply chain to chaplaincy uh, because everybody will be affected by what they've seen and what they've done and everybody needs to know that there is no normal uh, in normal recovery people think about it in different ways and need support in very different ways some people just need to be told that that was really horrible you did a great job uh, no one should have to see something like that and then they go home to their families and they talk about it and they're fine. Other people uh, don't do anything for a year and then a year later realize that it's had a profound effect on them and need counseling uh, and then everything in between. That touches on another question that I had for you. I can imagine that this sort of event is traumatizing for everyone involved. What kind of emotional support is available from the hospital for providers or employees who may feel deeply affected? So what we did and what we have done since is put in a robust response plan uh, for employee assistance. And that includes psychiatry, psychology, chaplaincy, uh, as well as a more organized uh, intervention with primary care and family medicine so that people understand and know what the resources are, but also understand and know that it's absolutely expected that everyone in some way, shape, or form is going to need resources. And just as important as the immediate response with resources is the planned, delayed interval response so that you know that there are other events that are gonna trigger uh, remembrances. So for instance, the Boston bombing triggered remembrance, the Newtown shooting triggered a remembrance, the Orlando shooting triggered a remembrance, the San Bernardino shooting 
triggered remembrances, which means that people who were involved in it got over it and are doing perfectly fine, um, suddenly are brought back to that place and they need resources. So it's not just the initial resources, it's not just letting people know that the resources are always available, but then being active again when there's something that could trigger a remembrance. Starting from the time a call comes into dispatch, what is EMS and emergency medicine's role in a mass casualty event? So let's start with EMS. After the Aurora shooting, EMS in Aurora quickly set up a triage point in a nearby retail parking lot. Can you talk about general EMS training and protocols for response to mass casualty events? So let's talk about that generically at first, because Aurora was very, very different, uh, and there's a lot that has changed because of Aurora. So in general, uh, EMS, depending on whether it's a third service or part of fire, uh, has a linked response with all first responders, which includes police, EMS, and fire. And all disasters are local, so it's the local response, uh, whether it's EMS or fire, that that does the initial evaluation. And it's part and parcel of all EMS, fire training, and police training on how to deal with a mass casualty event, whether it's security, uh, whether it's evaluating patients and doing field triage, or initiating life-saving care, uh, or primary response, or decontamination. It's part of the basic package that all paramedics are trained in, and medics are trained in, and firefighters. What do EMS personnel need to do to ensure their own safety when attempting to rescue victims in hectic and potentially dangerous situations? When we say specifically the Aurora shooting, uh, that was an active shooter. So even though there was an EMS response, it was primarily a crime scene and an active shooter, which means that police are in charge. And EMS needs to know, uh, and they do know because it's just so ingrained in how they train, how they're trained, and how they work with uh, police officers, that when it's an active shooter and it's a crime scene, uh, their job is to be protected and protect themselves, and that they will be brought in when the scene is deemed to be safe. And that's just absolute core training in EMS. Lincoln 25, I need rescue to stage in the, in the uh, west parking lot. I need at least three or four ambulances brought in here. Everybody can stage in the west parking lot by the... Uh... Cruiser 26, bring all the victims that have been shot to the north end of the theater. Copy. All the victims need to be taken to the north end of the theater. The official report states that all EMS transports were made within 52 minutes of the first 911 call. Can you touch on EMS triage and transport? What's the balance between load and go versus on-site treatment? Oh, that's a great question, and it really depends on the event and depends on the resources. So because disasters or mass casualties are really contextual, meaning... Uh, 10 critically ill patients at the same time for a tertiary quaternary care hospital in a large city may not be a mass casualty, uh, but five patients in a small community with a small community hospital will be a mass casualty. Uh, it's really contextual, and it depends on the type of event and also depends on the resources of the community. So, for instance, uh, in a mass shooting, like the Aurora shooting, where we're penetrating trauma, uh, it really is load and go because it's penetrating trauma. So the local um, response is really 
rapid transport control of hemorrhage and repletion after managing airway. Uh, in other th types of mass casualties, it could be different. For instance, if it were an earthquake or a tornado or a fire or smallpox, it would be just different. So it's contextual to the event, uh, and it, if it's rapid and violent and penetrating, uh, rapid transport is very important. If it's slower, uh, then it doesn't have to be that way. Now let's talk about the hospital side of things. There were six hospitals responsible for the care of victims during the shooting. How was it decided which patients would go to which hospital? So the Aurora shooting was very different. And the Aurora shooting uh, was different because it was an active shooter and it was police that was in control. Uh, and EMS had organized uh, a point where they would gather the casualties, uh, but there was also many firefighters and many police officers. So for instance, if there's a large car accident and EMS is called and there are multiple casualties or a small plane accident, uh, they have a predetermined way in which they alert the hospitals and rotate the patients depending on acuity to the hospital. So if there are three trauma centers that are equidistant, they would alternate all the, ca the casualties between those three. In the case of Denver, there was a children's hospital or two level two trauma centers. The level one trauma centers were farther away, uh, so they would uh, alternate those patients in that way. The Aurora shooting was very, very different because many of those patients were transported by police and private vehicle. And because police are not in the EMS communication system, the synchronized dispatching to hospitals uh, did not happen in this case. And that's why there were many, many patients that were brought to University of Colorado Hospital, uh, fewer patients that went to the Aurora Medical Center, and then Children's Hospital, and then some patients went to, to other hospitals. In retrospect, um, that turned out to be unequivocally a life-saving decision. When hospitals first hear about a major incident, what kinds of things need to be organized immediately to prepare for a large number of patients? It depends on the information that they get. Uh, hospitals routinely train uh, for influx of patients, and there's usually a, a very standardized way in which they're communicated with. So whether you get a notice from a city or county or EMS that you're getting 10 red patients and three yellow patients and four green patients, or you're getting an unknown number of critically ill patients, uh, you have an internal response plan, uh, which includes emergency medicine, all of the other medical services, trauma surgery, uh, depending on the type of incident. And you train for these, you practice, uh, and you try and do what you usually do. Can you explain what you mean by red, yellow, and green patients? So there's black, red, yellow, and green. Uh, black is it's a form of field triage. So a patient who's deemed black is deceased. Uh, a red patient is critically ill. A yellow patient has a single uh, organ type of injury and requires care. And green is ambulatory, does not require immediate care. So if you had 10 reds, 10 uh, yellows, and 10 greens, uh, in two hospitals, you'd give five of each to both of those hospitals. If you had one trauma center and one non-trauma center, you would bring the red patients to the trauma center, and then the other patients you'd bring to the non-trauma center so the trauma center didn't get overloaded. How do hospitals communicate? 
Do they work together to make sure that all of the hospitals have the supplies and personnel that they need in an incident like this? So hospitals uh, are often appropriately supplied for the initial encounter. And hospitals communicate through a centralized communication process uh, through EMS, through the, the local municipality, where hospitals cooperate and have to share supplies is usually in prolonged events. So an event where there's some type of infrastructure collapse of highways and bridges and planes can't get supplies to a hospital and they've been operating for days. Uh, most hospitals have enough supplies to be able to deliver care, routine care for three days. And for higher acuity or sudden catastrophic care, they usually have enough for X number of patients per se. And then when they have over X number of patients then they communicate centrally and there's emergency dispatch of supplies. During an event like the Aurora shooting, when many hospital personnel need to be available in the hospital to take care of patients, how are employees contacted to come into the hospital? We have a system called Everbridge, uh, and it's a centralized uh, digital communication system where you can communicate with different teams of people, depending on what it is you'd like. And for instance, if it's a mass casualty, uh, I will get an email, a text message, a phone call on my home phone and my cell phone all at the same time. And then I acknowledge that I've received the, the call and then I'm, I acknowledge that I'm either coming in or I'm not coming in. And the incident commander, the person who's in charge on the scene, then gets a report that of the 12 trauma surgeons, six have received and four are coming. So that who's managing the event knows what their resources are going to be. So everyone would be contacted, and then they could reply yes or no to whether they're available or not? Not everybody who's an employee and not every doctor, but everybody who's in a certain category of employee or doctor, depending on the type of an event. Should hospital personnel who hear about an incident come into the hospital to help during the emergency? Or does that just make things more hectic and confusing when people just show up? Hospitals should have predetermined response plans for different events. And there are critical employees, for instance, a trauma surgeon when there's a mass casualty, uh, and then non-critical employees, not that they're not important, but not critical to a response. If it's not part of your job and you haven't trained for it and you don't know what to do, uh, you should not come until called specifically. During a mass casualty event, if a medical student happened to be on shift in the emergency department, what kinds of things could they do to be helpful? It depends what happened. Uh, everybody can be helpful and everybody should be helpful. And we had medical students who were on shift uh, during the mass casualty. And it can be everything from delivering care uh, to helping a physician deliver care, helping a nurse deliver care, uh, moving patients around. Everybody is helpful. How do hospitals deal with the multitude of worried friends and family members who may flock to and call the hospital in the aftermath of an event such as this? So hospitals will often have different sections as part of the hospital incident command program. And they'll have a different part of the hospital with a different person specifically dedicated to that. So we will communicate with the media, we'll communicate with uh, family, uh, and we'll tell them routine updates. The challenging part can be if, for instance, you had a friend or a family member who was at the Aurora shooting and they were taken somewhere, uh, finding out where they were taken can often be challenging. So often we will set up a centralized way to communicate 
with EMS what patients we have, uh, and then they can tell all the hospitals where the patients are so we can communicate. That's not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time to, to set that up and make it work, uh, and that's one of the challenges we had at the Aurora shooting. Metro 10, Lincoln 25, do I have permission to start taking some of these victims via, via car? I got a whole bunch of people shot out here, no rescue. Yes, load them up, get them in cars, and get them out of here. I notified rescue. Can you just let me know what hospitals you're taking them to so we can give them a heads up? Lincoln 25, just notify all the hospitals we got people coming in. The official report states that all victims who could have survived their injuries did so. Was the success of this response due in part to the decision to transport patients to the hospitals in police and civilian vehicles? Did this decision create any problems from the EMS or hospital standpoints? I think that there were a lot of decisions that were made that contributed to the high survival rate that uh, we had, uh, and there was some luck involved as well. There were some true leadership moments that happened at the night of the Aurora shooting where people made decisions that were not necessarily the decisions they normally would make uh, that were that turned out to be life-saving. So for instance, during the Aurora shooting, a police dispatcher instructed the police to put multiple patients in a police car uh, and bring them to the hospital. That's not what they normally do. That unequivocally saved people's lives, without exception, uh, that got them to the hospital much faster than they otherwise would have. And these patients had penetrating military-grade types of injuries where rapid surgery was the only thing that could save their lives. That was one decision that was made that saved people's lives. The other decision is one of our doctors was taking care of a woman who was holding her baby and had scraped her ankle. And the doctor asked the woman how she scraped her ankle. And the woman said, I was running out of the movie theater. And said, why are you running out of the movie theater? She because there was a guy in there shooting. So that doctor stepped away from the patient and activated our disaster response plan. That's not what she normally would have done. Uh, what normally would have done is she would have spoken to the nurse or the charge nurse who would have called EMS dispatch to ask if there's a mass casualty. But there's something about the way in which that woman described the shooting that she thought to activate our mass casualty plan, and that was a life-saving decision. Our charge nurse at the time uh, spoke to uh, EMS who said there could be a couple patients coming, and there was something about the way in which she heard that that she thought to call the operating rooms. That's not what she normally should have done or would have done, but there was something about the way that EMS told her about those patients that she called the operating room charge nurse and said, be prepared. So the operating rooms started preparing and were ready for patients. Those three things, which we still can't explain why those people made those decisions, just call them leadership decisions, uh, save people's lives. Do protocols for dealing with mass casualty events originate from battlefield medicine? If yes, what aspects of our current protocols come out of that arena? If no, where do our protocols come from? So a lot comes from the military. Uh, the concept of field triage comes from the military. Uh, and the concept of mass casualty care can come from the military. Most of the preparedness work that is done is in collaboration with the regions within the United States. So the United States is broken up into different 
disaster regions and mass casualty care regions, and, and planning is usually regional. It doesn't usually involve the military, but it certainly involves first responders, and it's done under the auspices of the Department of Homeland Security. What procedural changes happened in the wake of 9-11, and how do they now play roles in our preparation for mass casualty events? Well, one of the tenets of disaster medicine is that interest in disaster medicine is directly proportional to the extent of the last disaster and the time since the last disaster. So 9-11 changed everything because of the scope of the disaster uh, and the national exposure of that disaster. And it forced everybody to say, are we prepared? And the answer was, not for that. So what should we do? So there was an emphasis on emergency preparedness and an emphasis on funding emergency preparedness that had never existed before. There were some pragmatic things that came out of 9-11 For instance, it was quickly realized that there was no way for the police, fire, and EMS to communicate with each other. So now it's standard that for mass casualties, EMS, fire, and police communicate with each other. So lots of pragmatic things came out of it, but the most important thing was that there was an emphasis from the federal level to the very local level uh, that preparedness uh, was important, and it started a really different age in emergency preparedness. Can you give me an example of how the Aurora shooting helped us prepare police EMS and emergency medicine for subsequent mass casualty events? Yeah, I can give you a very direct example. Uh, When we did the Aurora shooting, we uh, spoke about it a lot and wrote about it a lot and gave presentations about it because it was relatively novel to get 23 critically injured patients all at the same time. And one of the talks I gave was to a former group of colleagues from Boston. And he took my presentation and he brought it to his board of the hospital and said, we're not prepared for this. And they then started to get prepared uh, for what would have been an influx of highly or high acuity patients in a short period of time. And it turns out that in Boston, during the Boston bombing, they got the exact same number of patients that we got here in the exact same period of time. Any last comments or important takeaway messages from the aftermath of this tragic event? I think the most important thing I learned was you can't ever underestimate the need of the staff for emotional and support after an event like this. Uh, it's not normal or natural to see people who've been injured in a military way uh, in a domestic environment. Somehow we think about being prepared for burn patients, for uh, lots of ill patients, for car accidents, but we can't and shouldn't get our head around multiple injured patients with high velocity projectiles like you see in the battlefield. So you cannot, cannot overestimate the need. Dr. Zane, thank you for your work not only to improve the University of Colorado health system, but to improve the emergency medicine response to mass casualty events on a broader scale. I appreciate that you took the time out of your day to educate us on this important and relevant aspect of emergency medicine. My pleasure. Thank you for asking. A special and heartfelt thank you goes out to all of the brave police, first responders, and medical professionals who have worked hard to save as many lives as possible during not only the Aurora shooting, but all of the subsequent shootings, the most recent of which was in Las Vegas. Additionally, 
Many thanks to Arapahoe County and the Colorado 18th Judicial District for providing the material and permission to use sound clips from the actual event. Thank you.